Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 27, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the book Spiritual Grit, which came out a couple of months ago, a couple years ago, The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. All three of those, by the way, if you're looking for a little... Jesus retreat in your summertime, where things slow down a little bit, and maybe there's even a hammock in your future, any of those three would be great to pick up, and it just kind of as a, as a marker for your summer. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read a book in the summer that sort of helps me to remember the whole summer. Oh, that was the summer I read Wild at Heart, for instance. It, it, if that's you, and you'd like to mark your summer somehow with uh, an experience of something that really makes you think and uh, helps you to uh, transition your life into the, uh, into the place you would like it to be, consider picking up a, a copy of Spiritual Grit, Jesus-Centered Life, or the Jesus-Centered Bible. We'll have links to all of those on our podcast page, which is at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. So today we begin a month-long run of episodes that focus on the shockingly tender aspects of Jesus. So during June, we paid ridiculous attention to how and when and why Jesus was so tough with so many people. He was tough with his friends and his enemies, and we wanted to lean into that tough side of Jesus uh, and as a precursor to leaning into this tender side of Jesus. Now, these aren't compartments in Jesus. He's one whole person, uh, but it helps to try to understand the the different seasons and different reasons why Jesus was tough with some and tender with others. Um, you know, he he was downright offensive with people. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. He he was downright offensive with with people. But what's startling is that if you pay close attention to the interactions he had. He was at least as often offensive for his tenderness as he was for his toughness. So many times people were scandalized by how tender he was with people he wasn't supposed to care about, and how tender he was with people who should have been considered guilty and untouchable. Uh, he, He shook up the world, you could make a case, by the ways he was tender with people, more than the ways he was with tough, more than the ways he was tough with people, his tenderness was often unexpected. Uh, in the eyes of many, it was unwarranted, and in the eyes of especially religious leaders, it was totally unwelcome. In a lot of circumstances, he was shocking in the way that he was tender. So today, I've invited my friend Scotty Priest, who's the pastor of a church in Denver that has percolated into a really fast-growing community over the last decade. I say percolated because he planted the church about 10 years ago, and right now, because of all of the foundation laying over this last decade and the health of this congregation, it's really percolating now. And 
Uh, my wife and my whole family uh, have been a part of this church for a couple of years now, and I've just been so drawn to Scotty and impressed by Scotty in the best way possible because of his authenticity. He's one of the most authentic leaders I've ever known, and I've been around a lot of them. So we're going to hear from Scotty a little bit later. I thought it would be fascinating to talk to him about an aspect of Jesus' tenderness that we're going to go after today. So to kick this off, let's explore a one of these shockingly tender encounters I said that Jesus had. This one is one that we don't often focus on. It's an encounter Jesus has with a thief, and this thief is on a cross next to him as he and two others are dying from the most horrific form of torture and execution that's ever been devised by human beings. They're dying on a cross. And in this scene from Luke 23, Jesus has a brief encounter with one of those two criminals hanging next to him. So let me just read this. This is in Luke 23, starting in verse 39. Here's what it says. One of the criminals hanging alongside Jesus cursed him. Some Messiah you are. Save yourself. Save us. But the other one made him shut up. Have you no fear of God? You're getting the same as him. We deserve this, but not him. He did nothing to deserve this. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, don't worry, I will. Today, you'll be joining me in paradise. Now, this version of this little encounter is from the message version of the Bible, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this. I just like the language, the way Eugene Peterson normalizes the language in this. But just to set the context and the stage for this encounter, uh, this is obviously happening in the midst of abuse and unimaginable pain. But more than that, even, Jesus is experiencing the deepest sorrow a person has ever experienced, because he's about to experience separation from his Father. He, he cries out to his Father, why have you forsaken me? It's an experience of a break in their relationship that Jesus has never experienced, because the Trinity has been one for eternity. And on the cross, Jesus experiences a, a kind of profound loneliness that we can't imagine, because we, we don't understand the kind of community that he had to start out with. So in the midst of the, just the f- physical pain and the emotional and spiritual turmoil and pain, Jesus responds to this career c- criminal and guy who's probably a part-time terrorist with this tender assurance and an incredible invitation and promise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Really, I, I, love, I, I, I wrote this once as a note about this story, and I come back to it all the time. When Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, he's really, he's really reiterating himself, because to be with Jesus is paradise. What if paradise is actually a person, not a place? Paradise is where, wherever Jesus is. So when Jesus says to this man, today you'll be with me in paradise, what if he meant, you're going to be with me by the end of the day, and that will be paradise for you? So some historians have named this 
criminal, the, the one that defends Jesus and asks for his mercy, some have named him Saint Dismas. Um, that name is D-I-S-M-A-S. I'm not sure how they decided that his name was Dismas. I'm not sure if that comes actually out of a historical record, or if this was just a name he's been given by ancient historians. But they call him Saint Dismas for the simple fact that Jesus assures us that this man, for sure, is going to be with him in paradise that day. And in the classic Church tradition, a saint is someone that we are sure of who is in heaven. And we know from Jesus' own testimony here that this man is with him. So he's Saint Dismas, even though he spent his entire life as a criminal. So our great temptation um, in life, and this is the temptation that God's enemy insinuates into our humanness from the very beginning, is that we can be little gods. And what I mean by that is the, the primary temptation thrown out to Adam and Eve at the beginning of time from the evil one was this thought that God was holding out on them, and this fruit that they were not allowed to eat from is just one example of many things that God was holding back from them, and wouldn't it be better to just be your own God? Why do you need this God? Why do you need to depend on this God? Why not be your own God? Why not reach out and grab that fruit and grab control back of your life? And that's really what happens when Adam and Eve reach out and take a bite of the apple. They're grabbing control back into their life, and from that point to this point, we are haunted by our dependence and our addiction to our own control. So the enemy of God understood very well what a poisonous, toxic thing this would be if we grabbed control back of our own life and rejected a dependent relationship with our good Father. He understood very well how destructive that would be to, to people throughout history. So now uh, the promise that we can be a people well capable of charting our own path, independent from God, is like breathing for us. All of us, no matter whether we know Jesus or not, no matter whether we follow him, no matter how long we've been following him, are tempted to believe that we're well capable of charting our own path. In fact, the, the greater skill level that we have, the greater achievement we have under our belt, we have this sort of unspoken expectation that I pretty much know how to do this on my own. I don't really need God for this. In fact, the, the, the great argument from the new atheists in our culture uh, is a classic argument. Uh, it's a, a diatribe against weakness. It's, it's the insinuation that people who are in relationship with God are essentially weak when you should be strong. And it's a arrogant uh, and dishonest appraisal of our own ability to control our lives. And in the end, all those who say that a dependence upon God is fundamentally a weakness, they also cannot fight off the effects of aging, of sin, of poor decisions, of a destructive, broken world, and they come face to face with the consequences of their premise, which is, you can be strong enough to make it on your own as an independent person, your own God. You can, you can do it. In fact, the, the kind of the whole self-help industry rests on this idea 
that you can improve yourself enough to be independent, to be your own person, to, to be in control. But Dismas here is the face of desperate dependence, and it's, he's really uh, a person, but he's also a metaphor for us of the redemptive impact of a total loss of control. So here he is on the cross. Uh, once those nails go in, there's no more appeals, there's no more chances, uh, the game is over. There's no more overtime, it's over. And at this point, Dismas has a revelation that his ability to control his own life and be his own God is over now. And in that humility, in that acceptance of that reality, he turns to Jesus and asks for mercy. So if you notice, one of the thieves, the mocking thief, also asks Jesus to save, to save them, but he does it in a uh, mocking, snarky, condescending way. Uh, it's an attack more than it is a, a plea. He's still holding on to this control. He won't own his stuff, and he won't own it to the very, very end. Now, the other one, Dismas, makes a courageous choice to let down his guard, to own his stuff, and to turn to Jesus like a child. And that's one of the ways I experience Dismas in this encounter, is that he becomes a child again. Remember, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we are, as adults, we're not little children, but we become like them when we give away control and opt for dependence in our relationship with Jesus. We become like little children again. Little children are wholly dependent on their parents. We uh, Part of the controversy that's going on in our culture right now is the 2,000 immigrant children who've been separated from their parents. And the conversation happening in our culture right now is has gone almost bizarre, because now six-year-olds are expected to uh, appear in court and defend themselves. And all of us know this is a ridiculous notion, because children, especially young children, are wholly dependent on the adults around them to look out for them, to bring them justice, to keep them safe, to advocate for themselves. They can't effectively do this on their own. And this is the place that Dismas returns to. He returns to that place of childlike dependence, where he stops advocating for himself, and he invites Jesus, begs Jesus to advocate for him. So we aren't children, but we can become like them. And God, in the end, in the end is not interested in, in this whole issue of control. He's not interested in controlling us, even though this is really central to Satan's accusation about him. So Satan is, is implying to Adam and Eve that really God just wants to control you like puppets. Don't you want freedom? Don't you want to be your own God? So this is the implication that Satan plants in them, and it's this same implication that is planted in us, by the way. It's like a seed that, is, that has remained in our DNA as human beings from that point on. But, but Jesus is actually interested in freeing us from the tyranny of our own sort of godlike control in our lives, so that we can experience the freedom of an abandoned relationship with him. So what would happen if we lost ourselves by relinquishing the control that we so staunchly defend in life? The, the, the same control that the other thief 
refuse to give up to the very end. Well, Jesus says we will find ourselves when we lose ourselves in this way. Remember, he said this in Matthew 16, for, for whoever wishes to control his life will lose it. So I actually replaced a word there. It, in the original, it says, whoever wishes to keep his life will lose it. And I put in the word control, because I think it fits here. So I'm going to read this, this, this thing that Jesus says, and I'm going to substitute the word control here. So listen, listen up. For whoever wishes to control his life will lose it. But whoever gives over control of his life for my sake will find it. It's a dichotomy. It's an irony that when we uh, give over control to him, we find freedom. We find our life for the first time. So Jesus' tender response to Dismas is really a recognition that this broken man has given up the fight for his own godness and turned to the one true God instead. So this trans this translates to uh, us reneging on this myth that all of us have embraced on, at one level of an, or another, that we can be masters of our own domain, and we are always working to try to convince ourselves that this is true, that this myth might be true. But the thief's, Dismas's beautiful act of dependence frees him from the prison of his own control. And our own chosen dependence with Jesus produces freedom indeed, really, in our lives. And that freedom is really the intimacy with God that we've always longed for, that we're actually created to enjoy. It's irony that as we give over this need to control in our lives and turn in a dependent way to Jesus, that we find this freedom that we've always longed for. There is a way to escape the tyranny of control in our life, and Jesus not only shows us this path, he is the path itself. I thought I'd read to you an excerpt from one of my favorite books. I've mentioned this book on the podcast before. It's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books. It's The Great Divorce. And there's a scene in The Great Divorce that is like seared in my imagination. It is so brilliantly written in such an excellent exposition of why it's so difficult for us to own our stuff and why we have such a hard time of laying down our control that I thought I'd just read you this little segment. So the premise, just real quick, uh, of the story of The Great Divorce, it's C.S. Lewis imagining what would happen if a busload of, of ghosts from hell were taken, were given the opportunity to ride the bus up to heaven and get off the bus and interact with residents of heaven to see if some of the people from hell might want to immigrate <laughs> up to heaven. And so the whole book is full of these encounters of these individual ghosts who have very distinct personalities, just as they had in life, interacting with people who are now residents of heaven, some of whom they knew when they were all alive. And this is one of those encounters where a ghost gets off the bus and he meets an employee that he used to manage when they were both alive on earth, and this employee actually murdered someone that they both knew. And so he was uh, locked up and executed for the murder of this uh, co- this common acquaintance. So the ghost meets this, what he considers, a, a, you know, 
in his mind that the man no longer has a name, he's just murderer. So the ghost meets him, and they have a conversation. Here's how it goes. Don't you know me? He shouted to the ghost. Uh, there, there's a narrator here, so so the narrator is watching all this. So so the 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 murderer who was executed for his crime, but who asked and received forgiveness and is now in heaven, says, "Don't you know me?" And he's shouting this at the ghost. And the narrator says, "I found it impossible not to turn and attend the face of the solid spirit. He was one of those that wore a robe, made me want to dance." It was so jocund, so established in its youthfulness. Well, I'm damned, said the ghost. I wouldn't have believed it. It's a fair knockout. It isn't right, Len, that you know. What about poor Jack, eh? You look pretty pleased with yourself, but what I say is, what about poor Jack? Well, he's here, said the other. You'll meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. Well, of course I did. But it's all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean, but what about the poor chap himself, laying cold and dead? Well, but he isn't. I've told you, you'll meet him soon. He sent you his love. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for, as pleased as punch, you a bloody murderer, while I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. Well, that is a little hard to understand at first, but it's all over now. You'll be pleased about it presently. Till then, there's no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Well, no, not not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what it did for me. And that was how everything began. Personally, said the big ghost, with an emphasis which contradicted the ordinary meaning of the word. Personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. Well, very likely, we soon shall be, said the other, if you'll stop thinking about it. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping its chest, but the slap made no noise. I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I done my best all my life, see? I done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted to drink, I paid for it, and if I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. Uh, it would be much better not to go on about that right now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was, see? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me, and I'm only a poor man. But I got to have my rights, same as you, see? Well, oh no, it's, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights or I should not be here. You'll not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. Well, that's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best and I never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Well, who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. Well, what do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do, at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking. 
and nothing can be bought. Well, that may do very well for you, I dare say. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat as you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago, and you can tell them I said so. Well, the other shook his head. You can never do it like that, he said. Your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on our grass that way. You'd be tired out before we got to the mountains. And it isn't exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What isn't true? asked the ghost sulkily. You weren't a decent man, and you didn't do your best. We none of us were, and none of us did. Lord bless you, it doesn't matter. There's no need to go into it all now. You, gasped the ghost, you have the face to tell me I wasn't a decent chap? Of course. Must I go into all that? I'll tell you one thing to begin with. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it. But I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. I used to lie awake at nights thinking what I'd do to you if I ever got the chance. That is why I've been sent to you now, to ask your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one. I'll stop there. I just love that because it's such a powerful example, a story narrative example of uh, a person who's offered the beauty of grace, the freedom of laying down all of that fight, um, and he, he just can't. He can't lay it down because it doesn't seem fair. He can't lay it down because his standard is, I'm a pretty good person. So why is a murderer who did a terrible thing enjoying the benefits and the rewards of something that only a good person should enjoy? It's, a, it's Lewis's way of absolutely destroying what is the spirit of the age, and it's still the spirit of the age today for us. We believe that uh, the standard for heaven, and standard in quotes, <laughs> the standard for heaven is being a good person, and it's still universally believed by uh, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. It's a fundamental belief that our own righteousness, our own ability to control our life, is what determines whether or not we'll live for eternity in paradise. And, and yet, here we have Dismas on the cross pleading with Jesus for mercy, maybe the first time in his life where he's really owned his own destructiveness, his own sin, and laid it down as this ghost would not, and picked up the grace of Jesus. So, when we own our own stuff and we approach Jesus authentically and we ask him for mercy, we find our life. And this is the life that this bright person, as, as Lewis calls them in The Great Divorce, this is the life this bright person is offering the ghost. But in the end, the ghost declines. He doesn't want it. What he wants is to be justified or others to recognize the justification of his own righteousness, and the bright person knows that that will never work in heaven. So Jesus always responds to these kinds of acts of courage with tenderness, 
So why is it so hard for us to do? So this is exactly what I wanted to explore with uh, Scotty Priest, our, our guest for the day. Let's listen in to my conversation with Scotty now. All right, I'm excited to have a conversation now with Scotty Priest. He's the lead pastor of Journey Church in Denver. He's a former longtime youth pastor who transitioned into a church planter, which is, you know, it used to be that transition from youth pastor to lead pastor was uh, kind of a cliche, but now there's this other little step where there, a lot of youth pastors transition into being church planters, and so that's Scotty's story, and he planted a church uh, a little over 10 years ago that has now grown into a thriving community. And I have to say that I, I've been around a while, and the thing that really drew me to Scotty is what a relaxed and authentic person he is, no matter what environment he's in. He's the same person when he's up front speaking as when I'm just having a casual conversation with him. And that kind of congruence really uh, draws me to people, and that's why I wanted to have Scotty on to talk about some of this. So, Scotty, you can say hello now, and just beware, listeners, Scotty is from Arkansas, so when he says hello, it's going to be kind of a shock. Yeah, I hope it's not too much of a shock. I'm actually from Georgia. I lived in Arkansas, but I want to give my home state credit, so I'm a Georgia Bulldog at heart. Yeah, Rick, thanks for having me on. I love you and your family, and so happy you're part of Journey in our community, and man, love seeing you guys every week. Yeah, I should have just called you a Southerner, and that would have been kind of blanketed the whole bottom right. of the United States, yeah. That's a lot of stereotypes for that, though, man, so be careful. <laughs> so we're talking here about what it means to own our stuff, and in the way that I introduced you is that you're one of the most authentic leaders I've ever been around, and that also means that I've heard you many times own your stuff, not, not just um, on in a side conversation, but in front of the entire congregation. And so I know that you've had your own personal journey of what it looks like to be a, a what you might call a public figure, a person uh, who a lot of people are looking at, and you've had to figure out how to own your stuff in the role that you have. So what is owning your stuff? What does that really look like, and why do so many people struggle to get there? Yeah, um, I think uh, obviously all of us have pride, and we have walls, and we have masks, but I've just come to the real conviction that we can't change what we don't acknowledge. And until we're able to be honest, I really think we repel God's help. And so the the more that we can be honest, the more that we can be vulnerable and open to the appropriate context, I think that attracts God and His Spirit to helping us grow in our lives. So I think being a student pastor for so long and working with middle school and high school students, they just they don't they don't suffer fake. They they really don't want to be around someone who's not real. It is so repelling to them, and they sniff that out right away. So I think working with middle school and high school students, you just you either adapt to that or you don't succeed. And so I just maybe naively just transferred that over to working with adults, and I found that most of them find that incredibly refreshing, especially if they grew up in hyper-religious environments. 
where they didn't feel like the people who were leading them were ever really honest about their lives and about their struggles. Yeah, so there's there's a, a little, there's a lot of wounding that's happened in in people in the church because of what you just talked about, where they were in an environment that they thought was safe, but really wasn't because right. somebody wasn't really authentic. Exactly. So uh, being authentic, though, owning your own stuff necessarily means you're outing your weakness, and that sounds nice and rhetorical as long as we're distant from it, but when you're in the midst of your weakness, uh, there there is a lot of leverage arrayed against simply acknowledging that weakness or owning your stuff or owning when you've blown it, for instance. Uh, there's almost always an initial defensive posture that we have inside. So in your experience, what blocks us from taking responsibility for those weaknesses? Because we certainly are, most of us, quite quick to take credit for our strength. So yeah, sure. what what blocks us on the other side, typically? Well, I wish I had a more profound answer, but I think it's just our sin nature wants to protect ourselves, and we don't want people to think less of us. And even I've found in my own spiritual journey and with my people that we don't want God to think less of us. Like somehow we could hide that from Him, and we we put up the wall and protect it because we think I'm going to be diminished in the eyes of people. And I found as a leader, the the more that I can be appropriately vulnerable, the more respect I get from the people that I'm leading. I think Craig Rochelle said that people would rather follow a leader who's always real than always right, and I think that is incredibly powerful. And I think you see that with all of the people who interact with Jesus in the Gospels. The more honest they are about their stuff, the more vulnerable, the more open they are to help, the more they receive grace and tenderness and kindness from Jesus. It's when we pretend and we fake that we we really get, we get his sternness and turning uh, I think, you know, as a pastor, and I know you have lots of pastors and leaders who are listening to you, and you're such an influential voice in that. I, I've used the word like appropriate level of vulnerability because I think there is. And I, I don't, and when I stand on the stage and I teach, I want to be honest as I can be up until a point. And I don't think everybody needs to know my deepest, darkest sins, but I think somebody does. And so if you're leading in any capacity in the church, being vulnerable on stage, being vulnerable in meetings, talking about the things that you're struggling with in sermons, I think really, really helps. But honestly, we also need, and for me, I'm a guy, so I have a circle of two or three friends that don't care who I am. They're not impressed by my position or my leadership or my talent. They're just my friends, and they care about Scotty. And so they're the ones that I can say, hey, I'm struggling with this or struggling with that. I don't know what to do about this. This is really eating my lunch, and they're going to stand with me. But, you know, I think you have to really fight to find those people, and it takes a while to trust somebody like that uh, in your church and outside of your church. So you mentioned the word a couple of times here, the word protect. And my one question I have is, what is it we're protecting you, yeah. you you entered into that by saying it, it's 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 part of our sin nature to protect. But what exactly are we protecting when we're defensive in our posture? Yeah, um, I think for me, I, 
I can't speak for everybody, but uh, protecting my reputation, uh, especially as you build something as a leader, you're protecting an esteem that people have for you when they look. You don't want them to know, hey, he's just a regular guy. Uh, I think a lot of men struggle with that. We want to feel like we have it all together. We want people around us to feel like we're succeeding. So for me, that's part of what I'm protecting. I'm sure it's different for a lot of different people in the fact that they think, hey, if I reveal this, this person ultimately might not love me. They might not be with me anymore. Uh, I was just in a conversation earlier today with someone, uh, and they were battling an issue of sexual integrity and pornography and just so afraid to reveal that to even an inner circle of people because they thought, well, I don't know what will happen. I don't know what the consequences will be uh, for with my wife or with my friends or what, what's going to happen with my kids. I think we're all looking for, you know, will we be rejected? So those are some of the things I think we're trying to protect. Yeah, and it seems as though uh, we would we would expect that the, our closest relationships give us the most safety, and and they do in a lot of ways. But those close relationships also sometimes, ironically, lead to us hiding and being even having a greater level of defensiveness and a, and a unwillingness to admit our own. Uh, culpability, owning our stuff. The closer we get to someone, there, there's there's kind of this ironic uh, boomerang effect that, that yes, we should feel safest with those closest to us, but it's often the experience that, especially in in a marriage relationship, for instance, where it's right. really difficult for the two for the two to admit they're wrong. Why yeah. is that? Do you think? And that's above my pay grade. I don't know. That's like really heavy. <laughs> I don't really, but I, I honestly, I could only you know speak for myself. Like I always try to do. I mean, my, with my wife Amy, we, we've been married 21 years, and it is ironic because she already knows where I'm struggling. She already knows where I'm failing. But you know, there's a pretense and pretending in me that I'm okay and. Sometimes it takes several times for me to fall on my face in a certain area, and I'll finally admit it, and she'll say, I've been telling you that for a year, uh, which is, you know, fantastic. That's helpful, God, yeah. God's Holy Spirit sounds amazingly like my wife. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, I, I think for on both sides, we, we want to be loved, we want we want to be respected on both, both sides in, in a marriage, and it's just so crazy that we can't open up to the people that should love us the most. But I th- for me, it was, you know, for a lot of times when I wasn't able to be vulnerable, it was just because of fear. Yeah. Fear that her her view of me would diminish, fear that she might not want to put up with that, or, hey, I've made a mistake marrying this guy, I, you know, in the early days. But I think the more honest we can be um, with our spouse and the people closer to us, obviously the better, more healthy relationships we have. I think one funny uh, side effect for me of be- being an author and a speaker and and sometimes, you know, well, always having my family members read my books yeah. and listen to me speak, it's kind of a crazy side benefit that um, I know that if I'm t- telling something about myself— or sharing a story about them, that they are the gauge as to the authenticity of that, because they live with me. And it's actually a tremendous blessing for me to have that uh, boundary 
even around yeah. me because I know that I have to be accountable to who I'm representing myself as and what my real weaknesses are and how that story really went. Uh, they they right. surround me like a cloud of witnesses. <laughs> have you experienced exactly. that yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, my wife and my two kids sit in the audience every week. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm facing that mirror every single time. I'm, I'm up talking about anything. And in the spirit of vulnerability, maybe three or four weeks ago, I was talking about family, and I came off the stage, and my wife, just in a funny way, just said, man, it'd be great if that guy lived at our house. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I mean, and she knows that, hey, I'm trying or whatever, but like, hey, that was a really great, that was, that was awesome, but man, it'd be great if that guy you're describing lived with us. And, uh, man, talk about convicting and, you know, funny and all that. But so yeah, it, yeah, it, every single time I think, I mean, you know, I tell stories about my kids and that, and I honestly, I mean, I really, really believe that. I, I think John Maxwell says, you know, like success is when the people who know you best love you most. And if, if all, if I was successful in every area of life and had a great ministry, if my kids didn't love and respect me and think, well, my dad was who he says he was, man, I would just feel like the ultimate failure. And so, yeah, when they're out there holding up that big mirror for you, it, it's a great accountability. And, and this and this encounter Jesus has with the thief, uh, the good thief on the cross, yeah. uh, it's a, such a dichotomous experience because one refuses to own his stuff and treats himself like a god up until the very end. The others, for some reason— uh, decides to humble himself and have the courage to not only defend Jesus, but to own his stuff, and then to beg Jesus for mercy. In your experience, what's the difference between those two people? Uh, why does one make the—why do each make the choices they do? I don't know. Um, I've seen I've seen people, you know, throughout the years of ministry respond in both of those ways, um, and respond— uh, at different seasons of their life, depending upon what. I mean, you would think they're both at the end of their days. They're both facing pain and fear and ultimate death, that they would both in some way just humble themselves. Uh, but uh, I think the illusion of control, that you know, I hold on to my stuff because I think I'm still in control of this situation, even the guy who's dying. Um, I, I think another side of that, is not just how those people respond, but, you know, through the years church work, I've almost seen like church people have a disdain for the good thief, uh, because it's, he's like, he's a last second conversion, mm. and like somehow he didn't do enough, you know, and when you see people becoming Christians or, you know, lead at the last moment kind of thing, or having lived really tough lives, and then all of a sudden turning to Jesus, like, there's just not as much, I don't know, admiration or respect for them, but trying to build a culture in church of, hey, we're all the good thief, every single one of us, um, and it's at that point of release and surrender of control that we actually experience Jesus. So, uh, yeah, that was a long answer. I don't even think I answered your question. No, that's good. I, I mean, it's good. Over. Just a couple more before I let you go here. You know, sure. the the... The, the truth is that Jesus was tough on people um, at times. Yeah. He was tough on his friends and his enemies. And th in this month of July, we're, we're focused on the shocking ways that he was tender with people 
and I love to read the stories of Jesus with a filter on. So I choose something, and I look for it with that filter. And in this case, the filter would be, how does Jesus respond to people who own their stuff? And then I look for it when they when they're owning their stuff. What is his consistent response? And it's it's always tenderness. It's always like, who is this guy? I thought this was the guy who turned over the tables in the temple, but now he's acting like this. But it's it's because in the moment he's responding this way with this kind of tenderness to people who are owning up to their stuff. What does that tell you about Jesus? that this is the way he responds to this? What what does that speak to you about his heart, that this is how he responds to people who own their stuff? Yeah, I think it's really, really good news, um, and I'm so grateful for it. That's the first response that I have. He doesn't say, hey, pull it together, hey, get it right, come back when everything's straight. Um, that's always really, really good news to me. And then I, I think about things through the lens myself of, you know, of being a father and how I interact and engage with my own kids, you know, who are now 18 and 15, but just through their lives, when they were obstinate, you know, it was, hey, they need strength, they need discipline, they need a guardrail. And, but in the, in almost immediately in the moments when they turn with, with repentance, with, with hearts that are open, with I'm sorry, like that melts me as a father, and I, I'm assuming that that's the way that God sees us. As as soon as there's any sniff of turning and letting that guard down and stop being a pretender and a poser and someone who needs that guardrail, we get the embrace. And I'm of course, prodigal son's a perfect example of that. He lets him go and lets him do whatever you know. He doesn't try to stop him or chase him down. And when the consequences of that lead him back, what does he get? He doesn't get the rod, he gets the embrace. And so, yeah. Let me ask you one last quick question here. Because of your role, it's an unusual role. I mean, the, the, the average person uh, has no idea what it's like to live in the shoes of a pastor of a, of a growing church as, as you are. What do you think you have learned about authenticity in the way that you not only communicate but relate to others that would be hard to learn if you didn't do the thing you do every day? Meaning, if you weren't a pastor, um, you wouldn't have learned this thing about authenticity. What what do you think you've learned? Well, I just think you're, you're constantly in a spotlight. People are watching you. People are observing, you know, is what you're saying reality. We all get that to some extent, but it's just magnified a thousandfold when a thousand people are looking at you every week going, is he, is he really who he is? Is, is this what he's saying? Is that, is that believable? And so I think it just puts a big magnifying glass under that. And I would just say to any pastor or leader, it's so much more freeing to actually be that. It's so much more freeing to actually be authentic and awesome because I'm not, I'm not trying to climb up on a stage. I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend to be someone else. It's so exhausting to try to carry some kind of persona around, whether you're at a ball game or, or if I'm getting kicked out of a ball game because I'm yelling at a referee. You know, it's, it's okay to be who, who you are and be growing in Jesus. It's, and I have found, especially, I don't know why, but especially men, 
are incredibly attracted to that, maybe because of the male role models they had in their life. Their dads never, ever showed a crack of weakness or harsh. They were always harsh. But I just think they see a, a man trying to follow Jesus, trying to love his wife, trying to love his kids, and they think, that's believable. I might, I might could do that. Uh, I'm not going to be perfect like the other images. I, and so I think my position has allowed me to see guys go, I'm attracted to that. So. Yeah, I wonder if, the, if it's so attractive because of the very thing you just said. It's exhausting to live outside of congruence. It's, it's, it literally yeah. sucks the life out of you the, the deeper Absolutely. you get into it. And so I, my, my guess is that, that men are attracted to that because they're tired. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I'm tired of trying to be somebody I'm not. I'm tired of trying to run on this hamster wheel. I, I just would like to be, be me and not have to remember which lie I told last or which person I was here. Just being your authentic self, uh, I think, is the only way that Jesus really wants us to live. Well, thank you so much, Scotty, for uh, hanging out today. I really appreciate your perspective on all this. Thank you. Thanks, man. I really appreciate being with you. Love you and your family. I appreciate everything you do. All right. I love that conversation with Scotty. Uh, and I, I, I think uh, at central to this is this, that where all of this conversation orbits around is this default setting we have in us because of the sin of control that was planted in us from the beginning. And it's always going to be something that we have to deal with in our life. There's, I don't know a single person who doesn't still wrestle with this on some level. The direction, the, the destination we're, we're heading for here is a place where we can more and more quickly admit and acknowledge our own stuff, own up to it, take responsibility for it, and then live in a dependent grace with Jesus. That the sort of the reaction time, I know for me in my own life, one of my knee-jerk reactions uh, whenever something I've done has hurt someone or they didn't like it is to defend myself. Uh, That's my kind of knee-jerk default reaction. And I think progress, growth in our relationship with Jesus is is the progress toward getting to the place of honesty and admitting and acknowledging a little quicker than we did yesterday, and a little quicker than we did yesterday, so that we develop over time a, a counter-cultural and counter-nature um, commitment to living in congruence and living with a desire to acknowledge our own weakness um, without uh, surrounding it with the buffer zone of our own control and our own defense. I think it's interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus universally lambates religious leaders and Pharisees in so many places. I mean, it, it was well known by the time Jesus was crucified, it was well known among the religious leader community that you don't want to mess around with this guy, because he is constantly calling out your hypocrisy. And as we talked about in the episode that we did a couple of weeks ago on the cursing Jesus, he used very strong language with them. So it's interesting in the New Testament accounts that we don't see a record of a single Pharisee approaching Jesus to learn from him in the context of Jesus' clear 
disdain for their hypocrisy. But we do have one example, and his name is Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus in the night. And I think this is a profound act of courage on Nicodemus's part, because he certainly heard Jesus's criticisms of the religious leaders. Nobody escaped this criticism, and yet here he is, a well-known Pharisee, showing up to talk to Jesus in a humble way. Now, he does do it at night, because <laughs> uh, if he did it in the day, it would cause a stir. So he goes at night because his intention is to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus. He's not trying to make a scene. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He comes to Jesus, I think, in the spirit of Dismas, somebody who's heard these critiques and on some level has accepted that Jesus had a right to say that about him and about his peers. And so Nicodemus shows up already acknowledging that the truth of what Jesus has said, and in a very humble, childlike way, essentially says, Jesus, tell me what life is really all about. Tell me what the kingdom of God is really all about. It's a remarkable act of childlike courage, and especially so if all you've ever heard is criticism for the excesses of, of what the Pharisees and religious leaders had, had been doing. So one truth is that part of our default setting is we have a tendency to subtly offload responsibility for our own stuff onto others, and sometimes onto Jesus. We, we make excuses for ourselves, uh, sometimes outwardly, sometimes inwardly, and sometimes um, we offload that stuff onto Jesus. Uh, in that way, we're like the other thief on the cross, who just, out of our own pain and brokenness and frustration, we just hurl stuff at Jesus. This is really uh, uh, the story of Job. So Job is taken through a horrific series of painful events, not only uh, physically painful, but emotionally painful, losing his family, his wealth, his position. Uh, and in that time, uh, if a series of terrible things happened to you, it was a sign that God must have something against you. So he also had uh, his reputation destroyed. And in the midst of that, Job, who was sort of superhuman in his ability to persevere through this stuff, finally breaks and sort of raises his fist to God and finally lets loose with his complaint to God about everything that's happened to him. And in that moment, Job, as he gets it all out of him, God's response to him is, who do you think you're talking to? And then God spends about three chapters simply describing himself to Job. And at the end of that time, Job his eyes are opened. What he says is, I knew about you before, but now I know you. And now in this childlike moment, Job says, I have nothing more to complain to you about. Job simply owns his own circumstances in that moment. And again, God's response to Job is incredibly tender in the midst of him owning his own stuff. So this idea inside that we point the finger even if we don't do it outwardly, everywhere, including pointing the finger at God, at some point we got to out that stuff. We got to get it to the surface, let it come out, so that we can find our humble way back to being a child, and so that we can stop our journey toward deeper and deeper control 
and and enter into grace again. So uh, a little story from my history as we close this off here. My wife Bev and I were engaged three times. Yeah, there's a whole story behind that. Um, the first two times, Bev broke off the engagement. And we had a, a, a common circle of friends at the time who all knew our story, knew, knew our, you know, knew about the first breakup and knew about the second breakup. And one of the things that happened during this time that was really toxic and poisonous for me, and that Jesus, in his, in his tough graciousness, rescued me from, was that on the outside, it looked like I had done nothing wrong at all. To, to contribute to these two breakups. It looked like I was the innocent drive-by victim of Bev, who had, uh, you know, uh, decided that this was not going to work and had very painfully broken off the engagement. So in our circle of friends, there was a narrative that uh, some of them embraced, which basically said, well, in this situation, Bev is really the, the problem here, because Rick is obviously scot-free. And I uh, subtly and sort of unconsciously embraced that narrative. I believed that narrative. I lived in that narrative. The way I explained my pain was that there was something wrong with Bev and that she had done something hard that I did not deserve, and I was free and clear. And I lived in that kind of narrative for a long time. Underlying that, you could just say, uh, I, I thought, she, she's crazy, and I'm not. <laughs> but my way into life and freedom, the, the, the doorway that I walked through was the day that I realized, th- through meeting with a counselor on a weekly basis, that really the reverse was true, that, that the reason that Bev had broken up with me twice before was really an accurate assessment of some toxic patterns in my own life that remained hidden to most people, but she had experienced them. And even if she couldn't articulate them, she knew they were there. I was the real culprit in these breakups. In retrospect, if she hadn't broken up with me, it could have led to disaster in our relationship, because what needed to be outed in me was had been hidden. I had covered it over with high levels of control. I had managed to live my life feeding the myth that I could be my own God. But I covered it over with a lot of Christian stuff, and so therefore a lot of people around me had a lot of respect for me. Uh, I was sneaky, I guess is the best way to say it, unconsciously sneaky in the way that I hid all this stuff from others. The freedom came when I finally had to acknowledge my own culpability, my own role, my own stuff. That began a journey with Jesus that was much more tender. He could now get at me honestly, instead of having to work through all of these layers of subterfuge and defense. He could now get at my heart to actually change it. And that's when the possibility of Bev and I actually being in a long-term marriage relationship resurfaced. It wasn't until I changed, not her, me, that that became possible again. I had to embrace my own role in all of this. And I have to do it today and tomorrow and the next day. I'm a stubborn person. I'm often reluctant um, to own my own stuff until pain or honesty motivates me to own it first. And uh, I think part of, for me, the standard for maturing in my relationship with Jesus and maturing in my life is 
more and more, how am I able, without pain, to own in an honest way my own stuff? Obviously, just as Scotty said, that <laughs> we're sometimes... We, we would love to believe we're the best version of ourselves on our best day. We would hope that that's who we are, but we're actually a mix of that and all of the other broken stuff that shows up in our life. So when are you ready to give up the fight to maintain your godness? When are you ready, as Nicodemus was invited to do, to become reborn, a child all over again? Because remember, children are the only ones who get to live in the kingdom of God. When are you ready? Will shame and fear and doubt keep you from responding like a child? Well, let me just leave you with this. When you feel that defensive, protective reaction coming up in you, like almost like vomit comes up in us, but you can feel it when it comes up. It's this protective reflex. Let that be something like an alarm bell for you. Stop. Follow the thread from your stubborn refusal to acknowledge your own stuff. Follow that thread down to whatever it's tied to. It's going to require that you pause for a second and ask yourself, where's this coming from? Why am I defensive? What am I protecting? Once you get to the end of that thread, simply admit what it is. We call this confession in the Church, but it's simply admitting whatever it is. I don't ever do this alone. I always ask Jesus to help me. Find, Jesus, help me find the end of this thread. What is it attached to? And he's so faithful to surface and shed light on whatever it is that is tied to my defensive, protective response. Once it's acknowledged, once it's in the light, then I can move from that into grace. Um, I can re then respond like a child instead of a defense lawyer. And a child simply responds by asking for mercy. That's the end of this progression, just as it was for Dismas on the cross. You own your stuff. You defend Jesus for who he really is. You give up defending yourself. And in the end, you ask him for mercy like a child. That's the progression. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Um, next week, we'll explore another aspect of Jesus' tenderness. And remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on the PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com site. You just need to find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 3, Episode 27. Um, once you're there, you might also want to join the pigs. It's our community of, of people who are all desiring to go all in with Jesus. A pig, not a chicken. A chicken gives up an egg for the breakfast, but a pig gives its all. That's why we call this group the pigs. We invite you to join this community. It's a thriving community where questions are thrown out, support is asked for and received, and I would say it's a learning community of people who are all leaning the same way. They all want a greater intimacy with Jesus. I invite you to join that. And don't forget, pick up a copy of Spiritual Grid or The Unreasonable Jesus for your summer reading time. And by the way, look for Coming Soon. <laughs> this is in the Coming Soon category of the podcast. We have a new discipleship resource that's designed for either adults or teenagers to go through. It's a 12-session resource that is revolutionary and innovative and created. I, I was on the team that helped create this. It's called Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience. It'll be releasing in late August, and we'll be giving you more information about this coming soon, but 
I just love this 12-session experience because it, it's, a, it's a pathway to discipleship that is friendship-based instead of knowledge, head-based, memorizing stuff. It's all about what does a deepening friendship with God look like. So look for more information about that as we head toward the summer, but I wanted to put that on your radar in case you're right now thinking about something that you might like to do in your church, for instance, or in your small group. So again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next week.